What if you could learn from physical product entrepreneurs that have risen up from the trenches to dominating their market by creating successful physical product brands? Well, this podcast is hosted by me, Kunay Campbell, and it's about breaking the mold to becoming a smarter, savvier, and better product entrepreneur. You discover how to take physical products from concept through launch and to scaling up from physical product entrepreneurs who've taken their revolutionary ideas to 1 million, 10 million, and 50 million plus in revenue businesses. You'll also join me on my journey to build a million dollar physical product brand business in a year, where we both will learn about crowdfunding, selling to retail chains, launching through marketplaces like Amazon, strategic partnerships, publicity, celebrity endorsements, and selling direct to consumers. So if you're creating or building a brand in the consumer packaged goods space, in fashion and apparel, business products, or any physical product niche, listen in because we have you covered. Join the fast track to physical product business success. This is the Physical Product Business Podcast. I'm Kune Campbell. Let's get rolling. Hi guys, welcome to the Physical Product Business Podcast. As you know, this is the sister show to the 2X e-commerce podcast for entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs only. We talk about success stories, we talk about how to actually take your product to market or how to scale your product to market if it's already in market. Now today, I'm gonna take something slightly different, a slightly different approach on today's show. That's because I'm talking about, you always hear about successes. You know, you listen to every single podcast and everyone's talking about, you know, how they're here, how they were, you know, there before and how they've managed to scale and build companies. And it takes a lot of guts to come out to talk about your failures, you know, and I want to bring someone well the the guest on today's show is going to talk about his failures from the point of view of building a drinks you know um 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 um, um, brand for for, it was an energy and a sports drink brand and what you guys are going to learn pretty much is how what not to do basically um before I get into the show I'd like to introduce Tyler Tyler welcome to 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 today's episode thank you fantastic Fantastic, fantastic. So at the minute, you run one of the most popular blogs on bikes in general. But prior to this journey, you built out an energy drink brand, which you're here to talk about. Could you take a minute to introduce yourself, you know, just giving us your more or less evolution to where you are now? Um, Yeah, in just a minute, please. Yeah, sure. I'll give you the super quick version of it uh i grew up in uh, a family who was into advertising my dad started an ad agency the year i was born and so by the time i got to high school and college in the summers i would be working there from everything from you know cleanup to eventually doing graphics and add you know some uh, account exec stuff a little bit after i graduated from college i was there as an account executive and one of the clients was this vitamin supplement company. And so I started working with them and talking to them about how they did it and found out that you know, they just had an idea. They had a couple of doctors put together some formulas and then they were having it made for them. And this opened my eyes to a whole new world. Uh, at the time, I was also very into mountain biking and doing some races. And what I noticed at the races were a lot of athletes were taking Coke or Mountain Dew and watering it down or just letting it go flat mm. and then chugging that for this last lap kind of sugar caffeine rush at the same time those that were using Gatorade which was 
uh, you know, everybody knows Gatorade, but they yeah. were watering it down and diluting it like 50-50 because it was too sweet and too acidic mm. to drink full strength when you're, you know, at max output in an endurance race. And so it got me thinking, I was like, all right, what if there was a sports drink that had a little bit of caffeine and no citric acid? And so that was how I came up with the idea for a sports drink. And um, I'm getting into more of the details later about the naming and everything, but eventually... It was an okay product. It gained distribution and um, gotten some mail order catalogs. And eventually we were like, oh, this is still a niche product. Let's go big. Let's do energy drinks. You know, Red Bull's just come into the U.S. and Coke and Pepsi have one, but that's it. Small market right now, but it's the margins are insane. And so um, we jumped into that. Kind okay. of the sports drink, went into energy drinks. and Okay, so so you had two, two, two brands. Um, this is back in when, 2000, 2002? Yeah, 2002 is when we really kicked off the energy drink. Middle 2002, of- okay, so your, your, your idea came in in 2000. Um, yeah, you were started in 2000. You were a cyclist, um, you know, um, enthusiast. Did you race at the time or were you a spectator? Poorly. You, I you race, but not okay, very, you race. Okay, you race. Okay, not at high level. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Okay, so so you and and it just shows with with regards to what you're doing now, um, which is you know the blog bikerumor.com. Okay, so you you had the idea. So in 2000, had you so did you have a brand, you know, a, a tangible product, you know, to market? Had you taken the first brand to market, or was the name of the first brand the 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 sports, you know, drink? So it was called Propel for about one month. Uh, got really lucky that we trademarked that right before, like literally days before Quaker Oats had. And so they ended up buying the trademark off of us and that gave us very low six figures and it let me quit working for my dad and kind of go off and pursue this full time on my own. So that Lovely. Was, yeah, it was lucky and we just changed yeah. the name. It only been out for a month, so there wow. was really no brand equity. So, so no, it, was, it was Propel, and then you changed it to what? Pro Light. Pro Light. Okay. Okay. So, so Pro Light was. So, so how popular was Pro? So, how did you get to? So, so who 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 made it for you? How did you did you did you work with a consultant with you know with a nutritionist, or do you have some nutritionist background? What what did you do to to build out Pro Light? I did a lot of research on my own for ingredients and had been for a long time trying to make myself faster when the reality is I should have just trained more, but I was trying to look for the quick fix with nutrition. And As so always. I had done a, a ton of research on ingredients for my own personal interest and then it was just a matter of finding somebody who could order in these raw ingredients and blend it into a sports drink mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's pretty easy. You can get anything made for you really easily. Okay, so you went to a factory and you, you got to prototype, you you worked on the brand. Did you work with a marketing agency on the brand or, or consultant on the no, brand? No, that's the kind of stuff I've been doing all along, you know. Like okay, I, with your I, dad's agency, right? Okay, okay, so you, you that was super easy for you with the packaging and all. Did you have a single sort of size or um, did you have varied sizes? With yeah, no, it was, a, it was a powder mix. It was, you know, the big tub of... Okay. 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 So, which you just pour in your flask and mix with water. Okay. Okay. All right. Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. And then, how long did the prolites? So, so what the, were the initial challenges getting prolite to market? 
Uh, honestly, just getting it to market, it wasn't hard in that, you know, like I was friends with the guys at the local bike shop. So once mm-hmm. I had product in, it was just taking it in, getting some of the local shops to carry it. And then we'd go to the local, this, I was living in Florida at the time. So mm-hmm. we were taking it around the area bike shops and then we'd go to the state series mountain bike races and, you know, introduce it to athletes and shop owners there. And so it grew just kind of like that like us calling on shops then and eventually we were able to talk performance bike and another one called personal best nutrition mm-hmm. into carrying it and they had you know their national catalog okay okay did you did you get besides the national catalogs did you get any national distribution with retailers uh only from direct shipping we didn't have a distributor okay selling. well no i take that back we did actually we had khs bicycles had it in their catalog okay okay Okay. 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 So you, you'd built it out. What kind of sales were you doing in 2002 oh, when man. it was more mature? Uh, not much. I really don't remember. It was, okay. you know, I so mean, it was a it slog. Was it was a tough slog. But it wasn't. Nobody okay. was getting rich. Okay. Rewinding back to 2002, what would you have done better to, to get in it to market? Oh, man. Well, so the sports drink actually launched in 2000, and then mid-2002 to 2002 is when we transitioned to the energy drink. But gotcha. as far okay. as with the sports drink, like, back then, I don't really know. I mean, we didn't, you know, there, this was pre-MySpace back then, really. So, you know, there was no social media. Like, yeah. getting the word out was something back then. It was a totally different game than today. So we did a tiny bit of print advertising in one of the biggest magazines, and it was a complete waste of money because mm-hmm. it was, like, I think we paid four thousand dollars for an eighth-page ad in the back, and you know we could afford to do that twice. Yeah, it was, it was just money flushed down the toilet. It needs to be sustained if you're going to do well. If you're going to do print, okay. So you, so so that happened. Um, so if you were to do it today, how would you have done things differently? There's a lot of cyclists out there who have great personalities online mm-hmm. and are you know very active on social media very active at the events and you know just popular people that it's everybody loves free stuff right so you you just kind of see the product out there with them and if they like it great you know if they don't it's whatever there's a lot of athletes out there so it's it's easy to see the product now and get this recognition from through them to their audience yeah. and then just kind of grow that. And then even with social media, like you can, there's so much you can do just to reach people. In, influencers, I suppose, you know, you're, yeah, as you just alluded to influencers and then probably, you know, amplifying via social, um, via paid social, you know, eventually once you, once they start to, to show your products, you know, to their followers, you know, um, it's, it's a totally different world now. We, <laughs> we live into to 2000 is the MySpace 2000. Okay. Right, so the energy drink, um, it, it started out in late 2002. Did you sort of launch it side by side with, did you sort of taper down on um, on the first brand, yeah. on ProLite, and did you just focus all of your energies on the energy you know, drink? Yeah, we thought about taking ProLite and making a ready-to-drink version so that we could sell that in convenience stores, and then mm-hmm. we realized we'd be going up against Gatorade, which... It would be foolish. And so I was almost as foolish, but we just didn't realize it at the time was, hey, well, let's just go up against Red Bull, which at the time wasn't quite the juggernaut it is today, but it was still, you know, they had been around in other countries for years and they had their system down. 
And um, but like I said, there's only a handful of energy drinks at a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a phenomenal story, Red Bull. Um, I'm, I was reading a, a book. Um, something got, got to do with billionaire mindset or something like that, and they're talking about um, the founder of Red Bull and um, how Red Bull was, he was like working in an advertising agency, basically. He went to Thailand or the Far East or Japan, one of them, Thailand actually, for holidays, and they had an energy drink that tasted like crap. And he was like, and it was really big in Asia, and he just thought, you know, not, this doesn't exist in Europe, I think it was German. And he, he brought it to markets, and you know, they, obviously it's been around since the 90s or 80s, and, um, it, it's been it was a slow burn initially but it just kept at it and um, yeah. yeah what's weird is if you find red bull in some of the asian countries or even uh not so much europe anymore it's all the same but there's still red bull you can find in little glass vials and jars wow. and it tastes different it's either not carbonated like it's there's different variations depending on where you are interesting interesting okay so so what's the name of your 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 energy drink in 2002 so we call it burn, burn. Thinking, you know, energy to burn. Yeah, makes sense. Play on words. But what was it consistent? Was it like a Red Bull caffeinated, you know, um, energy drink, just like Red Bull, or? Yeah, same idea. We had uh, we we launched in the small cans initially, the Red Bull size cans, and it had about fifty percent more caffeine, a lot more vitamins, and then it actually tasted really good. So if you want to know exactly what it tastes like go get the yellow summer edition red bull right now and it's literally like verbatim flavor wise really okay i will try i shall try that i'll try that out okay so what lessons did you take away from ProLite to make burn um <laughs> as a potential success in 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 2002 man it it was such a different market. I mean, everything about it was different. You went from having a powdered mix that uh, you mix to a, a ready-to-drink product. Um, it was really just a completely different company, you know, different retailers. Like we had some bike shops that would carry burn because of our relationships, but you know, in our mind, we went from something that we actually kind of were super passionate about to looking at the dollar signs, and it was you know. So that was really like probably the first mistake was oh, there's just bigger market potential here. We could make a lot more money. And it's, you know, like for me, the challenge is creating a good product. And once that challenge was over, then it was like I just had no idea what I was doing mm. trying to sell something into an industry I never understood. And I, I sent you a bullet point first, and we can start diving into all the – I mean, I've got a lot of bullet points on my notes here next to the video yeah, screen. Yep, 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 yep. Okay, um, so so um, let's talk about – um. So, so what? What did you? What were your initial um, promotional plans? How did you start? What was your distribution like for 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 the energy drink for for Burn Energy? Uh, well, we did start right off the bat with bike shops because we already had some ends there mm -hmm. for sure. The next step was just starting to call local distributors, trying to find somebody that could take it into the stores or actually first we even just did self-distribution so like by this time i was living in north carolina okay so i was loading up the back of my expedition with cases going around store to store to store all the convenience stores and gas stations just trying to get people to carry it and okay okay, okay. eventually once we had like some base level of distribution that way then we could go to a distributor and say hey look you know we've got 50 stores in this area you know would you guys pick it up 
Okay, okay, okay. And did you do that? Did you eventually get a distributor? Did you get 50 stores to pick it up? Yeah, we did. We had you know decent distribution here in our home area, and okay. then we would push into some of the other areas in North Carolina. Eventually, uh, and this was another mistake we made, we had distribution in like 13 states total, you know, but it was a pocket here, a pocket there. Like our biggest market was probably the greater St. Louis area right. where we managed to find a couple of different distributors over the years. And um, I actually got into Quick Trips for a little while, which is a pretty big chain of C stores up there. Mm-hmm. But it was still, it was like scattered all over the country and there was just no way to support that. But Okay, so what what would you have done better? Would you have got a channel manager? Would you have gotten regional, so reps at at each um, in each region? How would you have played it if you were to do well, it again? <laughs> I wish I knew, honestly. Like it, that was one of the things that really hurt us was like I had no idea how the beverage industry works, and and to be honest too, like. You know, at some point you realize, okay, you need a good sales manager, but we never had the funds to afford that. So yeah, I think having somebody that understands the industry, that's a good sales person, would have been key. And we definitely lack that. I did have a sales guy out in California, Northern California, to try and handle that because we had two or three different distributors up in that area, just uh, right around the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had that, and it was whether or not he was any good is a different story but yeah I mean it definitely made it possible to have distribution out there yeah. uh, I also had a, a lady Judy Bushar um, she was on I think episode 6 of the podcast and she managed to um, get her her relish brand um, it's a condiment brand called Slawsaw into 8,000 stores Um it was a burn. I think she, she's she been running the business for like four, four or five years and she managed to get it into 8,000 stores. But one thing she did say, I asked her about a single piece of advice to to, every, to, 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 to physical product entrepreneurs, especially in the food um, sector, food and drink sector, was that um, she, she, she said that it's really important to get a mentor. Did, did you have one? Um, she said the mentor will help you not make mistakes and the mentor is someone who's done what you're about to do or something similar and um, even if it's like an hour a month you have with a mentor you know where you you kind of um, you, you, you lay out um, your plans the and then they give you targets and stay in the right direction it, it does really it really changed her you know her business and I think she's a mentor to other businesses um, do, you, do you agree and do you think if a mentor could have steered you in the right direction? Yeah, absolutely. And that leads to like a couple of points that I had written down here that I wanted to share was okay. um, not only did I not have any kind of mentor or anybody guiding me through this industry, teaching me about the industry, the ins and outs, is I didn't have, I either got no advice on a lot of important things or I got really bad advice on a lot of things. And that started even with the, the sports drink. And I can give you as many examples as you want. Okay. Uh, just, just cut me off when you want me to stop. Okay. So a couple of the big ones, though, were like when we sold the trademark for Propel, you know, we had a good bit of money sitting in the account, right? Well, nobody and, and my account knew that. My investors knew that. I had a couple of friends and family investors at the time. 
that had chipped in enough just to let us get those first production runs done. Uh, equity investors or, or debt? Cash. Yeah, so cash. So they invested cash and then, you know, they had a little bit of ownership in it. Okay. And so uh, people knew, the people who understood the books, like they knew what was going on. And so one piece of advice I got from my accountant was, oh, we'll just pay off that expedition, you know. So I'm like, okay, you know, and this was from my accountant at the time. Right. <laughs> like, so I did, and that was, you know, I don't forget what it was, 10 or 15 grand, just this chunk of money gone. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the year, income tax came due. I'm like, well, you know, uh, I could have really used that money to pay the income tax because also nobody said, hey, you need to set some of that aside because you just had this huge influx of income, you're gonna owe taxes on yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. And, and it might be incredibly naive and I might sound like I needed to say, but like, it never dawned on me that, yeah, I'm gonna have to pay some taxes on yeah. this. Uh, and then so the other piece of advice that it's, this one was, you know, you could see the good and the bad in it was, well, hey, you know, like, you've got this capital now, you really don't need these investors anymore, why don't you just buy them out? Because we were talking about like, I think maybe it was 15, 20 grand of total cash investment. And um, so it wasn't any harm in buying them out and had regained total control of myself, which was fine. The upside with that was when I went back to these people to invest in the energy drink, they were like, yeah, I mean, heck, you did so great the first time, let's go. Um, but the, the downside was, again, that was cash that was taken out of the company and never to be seen or used again. Cash flow is super important. Yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, like learning that the hard way is like, okay. So that and a lot of the other things I did with the energy drink down the road is why I'm incredibly frugal with bike rumor now mm. is because like I, I don't want to get rid of cash for stuff that has no measurable, uh, you know, gain at the short term or even like medium medium term right yeah um so yeah so those were those are the big ones to me it was like i had and even it came down to time and time again with the energy drink is there were a lot of stupid things we did with our money you know like we thought uh one of the big popular things at the time when we had the energy drink going was drifting and it's it hit the audience right like you know the people who are drinking energy drinks are you know were teenagers and you know 20 somethings and this is right when Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift came out and the drift racing scene was getting televised coverage and all this. So we're like, ah, oh, you know, like we need a little tuner car. We need to get into this. So we had our Focus Wagon, Ford Focus Wagon that we were using for deliveries. Well, we decided to tune that thing. So it had the exhaust, the engine mods, lowered rims, the Lambo doors that went up like that. <laughs> absolutely ridiculous, right? And fully graphic, you know, completely wrapped and stuff. So we managed to get a lot of that stuff from the brands for putting their logos on it for free, but we still still had to pay for some of it. Yeah. And we thought, oh, all right, well, you know, like we've got this car, so we're going to take it around the car shows. We were taking it to car shows in areas where we had no distribution. Like we would sample it and people right. would love it. And then they couldn't turn around and buy it. It was just... That was, still, that, that was a bit that was clever marketing really you know um you know kitting out a, a car uh, your <laughs> it was as clever as just you know the follow-through you know which you just said um with regards to going to so you you got passionate about drifting and forgot about you know the, the business more or less okay that's quite interesting okay, yeah any any other major 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 regrets or you know um <laughs> well, not regrets, but um, well, outcomes of bad advice. 
uh, you can give? Yeah, I mean, again, this was people who, so when we had the energy drink, we had a lot more investors. I think all told over the years, people have invested close to $400,000 in that. And this was all friends and family. There were no institutional investors. Um, so the first, probably biggest, worst piece of advice was when we launched this, um, nobody ever said, yeah, I mean, from the most basic level, right? Like I had QuickBooks, I was using QuickBooks. And like, I did, tried to set up QuickBooks for an inventory-based company, which was a nightmare. Like, right. like so bad. And so when I when we started the energy drink, I started from scratch and I, I tried to get our account to help me set this up. And it was just like, oh, we'll just set it up like before or whatever. Like there was no like, hey, yeah, let me set your QuickBooks up for you from the beginning so that it works like it should for an inventory based company. And then like years down the road, I tried again, like I, we got a new account and I was like, set this up for me. And it was just like this jumble of not doing it. And so the books were always a mess. And but when we had some of our bigger investors come on board a few years into it, I mean, these were people that had invested, you know, $100,000 or a little bit more. We would show them the books. They they requested to see the books at least quarterly. So I would send them to them. And they'd be looking at the things I was doing and how I was spending the money for marketing. And nobody ever said, hey, hold on a second. <laughs> like, maybe you shouldn't do this. Or, or let me make some suggestions. Or why are you doing this? There was right. almost no questioning of so, things. So, so where, where did they pay attention to over your meetings over your updates or, or, or in your books when you sent them your books i don't know i mean it, it was almost and not to throw anyone under the bus because the, i love these people but it was there was almost as though it was an exercise in seeing if i would do it there was not right any real actionable advice or valuable advice i was getting from these people and to be honest these were all people that if they lost this money, this was probably like gambling, right? They like could afford to lose it and they thought it was interesting what I was doing. They liked me. So maybe it wasn't that important to them if if this worked out. And I think they were hoping it would work out more because they wanted to see me succeed than it did yeah. that it matter that, to that, them. Yeah, than the returns. Yeah. Okay, okay. But still, like another instance with the cars. So we, we were going down to Texas. We had a, a tiny bit of distribution in Texas. And so we're thinking, oh, well, you know, it's Texas... And besides the fact that our other big vehicle is like a, a beat up Ford Windstar that looked terrible, we're like, oh, you know, we need a truck. We need a nice promo vehicle. Let's get a pickup truck. We'll, again, wrap it. I'm like, so we buy a brand new truck and made some upgrades to it. And we're sitting there showing up at events in this thing that we could barely afford. <laughs> and then you have like Monster and Red Bull showing up in their like monster trucks that are totally tuned out. They cost them more to decorate one of their trucks and fit it. <laughs> we made the entire year, and they've got a fleet of them. We're just like, how do we cope? How, how do somebody we let's do this? <laughs> yeah. So, from a revenue standpoint, where did you peak? So you you shot the business down in in when two thousand and eight or nine? Two thousand eight when it actually okay. closed. Yeah, we got rid of inventory so right by the end of the year. When did you peak between 2000 and 2000 and 2008? What what kind of revenues did you sort of peak at? There might have been a couple of years where we topped 100 grand or so in revenue, but it was never anything to write home about. I mean, it never made money. Like we were always spending more than we made, and a lot of that was production. Like the production runs were expensive, and they, every year they every run we did, basically the costs went up maybe five or ten percent. Like it just kept getting more and more expensive. And it actually became harder and harder to get it made because when we started, 
a lot of the co-packers were willing to take a gamble on us because we were one of the few energy drinks out there. We had the capital to pay for the run, and they saw that. But as it grew, there were some co-packers that we used where Monster came in and said, hey, you know what? We're just going to go ahead and buy 100% of your line time. Yep. Because they were making so much. So then all of a sudden, we couldn't use that co-packer anymore. We had to go find a new one. And that happened on multiple occasions. So there were times when we, for like five runs in a row, it was always at a different place, which meant I couldn't just say, hey, run us. I'd have to go there and oversee the run the first time to make sure that it was coming out right. Mm-hmm. And Because um, they're, yeah. they're, 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 they're a new company, and you just had to, yeah. So it was taking a lot of your time. And it was probably more expensive for for the business for yeah, you know for, as, as a cost. It became harder and harder to get it made too, for sure. Okay, so could you take us through the wind up? You know, when you started to come to the realization that this is not working, um, <laughs> I'm going to have to shut down. It must have been painful, but um, you know. You, you you may have seen the writing on the wall, but you were you know perhaps emotional and passionate about it. But how how did what was the journey like to towards wind down? Uh, it was not all that long of a process. It was basically what led to it was um, we ran out of money. Like we didn't have enough money to fund another production run, and none of the investors wanted to put more money in. So at that point, you're like, all right, well, I can try and blow out the remaining product and do one more run. But the reality is if we haven't made a profit and and made this thing work in six and a half years or six years, it's probably not going to work. And so at that point, it was just a matter of, uh, you know, like we owed a lot of money. And so it was contacting some of our suppliers and saying, hey, you know, look, I'm really sorry, but we're not going to be able to pay you. And it was not huge like we had always paid for our production runs but it was things like some of the shipping companies and some of our, our warehousing companies you know we had these i mean we're talking about like a few hundred bucks here maybe a thousand dollars to one so it's not like we stiffed anybody for a lot and we called and explained you know i mean it's just like there was nothing we could do you mm-hmm. know we just did not have the money to pay it so that was the tough part was calling these people that had trusted you trusted us with uh this and giving us terms and they're like, you know, I'm really sorry. Um, not going to be able to pay you. But as far as the wind down process goes, it was just, you know, we called our distributors and said, Hey, you know, we're not going to be able to supply anymore. And then of course, some of them said, all right, well, um, they just kind of left and we never got paid, but. Yeah. What, what kind of toll did it take on you emotionally? Man, honestly, I, tend to not take any of this stuff personally so it was it sucked but at the same time it was also a huge relief because it wasn't it wasn't fun you know like the fun part for me was in the first year and a half like getting it up and running this exciting new project and all that at that point once we had a product and that was running the fun part to me was trying to develop or come up with new product ideas that might work better or or sell better and which was a distraction also but that was what was exciting to me. So trying to like sell an energy drink in this business and figure out the distribution, like I, I kind of figured it out early in that it really sucks. Like the whole distribution and sales cycle of a food product sucks. It's it's just miserable. And you know, and I say that 
from my point of view, and and I feel like I mean, I can give you a ton of detail as to why, like a lot of reasons why. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to sound overly negative because there's people that make it work, and I think the people that make it work have a product that helps them make it work. And I'll, I'd love to touch on that before we finish this. Okay. Is why why our product didn't work, even though I thought it was a great product. There's a lot of reasons why it just okay. it wouldn't gain traction. But as far as like the emotional toll, honestly, man, it was more of a relief. You know, mm-hmm. the, the tough part for me was having to go and tell my friends that had invested in my family that, you know, like, look, guys, I'm really sorry. We're all going to lose money on this. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it just, it, you can't work anymore. Didn't work, no. I mean, let's, let's, let's talk about, you know, um, the, the, the failure point, you know, exactly why. Let's, let's just try and um, deconstruct or just unpick what was the number one reason, in your opinion, um, it didn't work. Just reflecting eight years oh, ago, more or less. I mean, the biggest reason, probably, if you wanted to sum it up, is we couldn't afford to compete. Is you know, so you have an. So you needed more funding. Oh man, we would have needed literally millions of dollars. Right, and I'll tell you why. So it starts with there's a lot of reasons that go into why we would have needed millions of dollars to make this particular product succeed. So I, I feel like we should start with the product, right? Like. Okay. When we had the sports drink, we actually had a unique product. It was the only one that had a little bit of caffeine, and it was the only one with no citric acid. That's a powder one, the the first powder one, right? And so, like, it honestly, it didn't even taste that great because I didn't do enough research when I was formulating it. Like, if I had to do that again, that product could taste amazing. But what feedback did people give you um, when you you gave cyclists, you know, um, you know, samples? Did they say? that it didn't taste that great or were they polite walking by and they taste a little sample cup between races or whatever they were like okay you know and i'd explain the benefits and the benefits were such that it was a compelling enough reason for them to try it so they'd fill up their water bottle from our our coolers and they'd go race with it and they come back man that stuff works great because it actually tasted better while you were exercising so when you're going at 110 percent for a race or a hard training you're Taste buds become more sensitive, so everything tastes sweeter, saltier, uh, tartar. And our drink was super mild, and so they didn't have to water it down. They could use it at the appropriate uh, concentration to get the full benefits. And so when people tried with racing, they loved it. And that was that was what saved us. I still could have made it taste better, but the point is, it worked and it had a unique selling proposition. So fast forward to the energy drink, and we had a basically a me too product like it looked different it was the only yellow can it was a bright yellow and everything else is like black and silver doesn't matter it tasted way better didn't matter had more caffeine didn't matter what mattered was that we were essentially looked and acted the same as everybody else except that we weren't cool and so when you have when your customer base is teenagers and 20 somethings you can have the crappiest product out there. And I mean, like, I've got all the respect in the world for Red Bull, but I've never heard anybody say, yeah, you know what? Red Bull's delicious. It doesn't taste it. good. No. No. But they, they were cool. And it, was, it just blew my mind, the people that were drinking that product because of the image associated with it. And it's, that's hugely powerful, right? So for us to be able to create that image around a product that was essentially late to the market, even though we were one of the first like 10 energy drinks out, we would have had to spend mil- tens of millions of dollars to try and beat Red Bull at their own game. Yeah. So where 
where you see people that came in in the energy drink market and succeed, like, so look at what Monster did, right? Monster yeah. came in with the 16-ounce product. They had, Monster was owned and made still be by Hanson's Beverage Company. Well, How Hansen's, many ounces is, is, a, is a standard Red Bull? Like eight and a half. Eight and a half, so they doubled it, okay. So they doubled it. And so Hanson's had a little eight and a half ounce energy drink, and it would it was sold in like health food stores, hmm. which is not where that market's going no. for drinks. So Hanson's developed Monster as a 16 ounce. So all of a sudden you had this huge value proposition. Dollar at same price, twice as much. Boom, killer branding. They spent a ton and they made a ton. I mean, so, a so lot. are you saying like because getting into the energy market, especially mass market, is a pretty ambitious, you know, idea yeah. to or concept to, to have to have to mind. So does that mean that you know if any of our listeners is thinking about going into a billion dollar industry, they should have or should, they should start to think about at the, from the onset how they're going to finance the marketing of that bill, you know, of, of that product, so they they get sufficient market share to stay in, you know, to stay active basically as a company. Yeah, I mean that's a huge part of it for sure. You definitely need to make sure that you've got the financing lined up. Um, but I think before that, even like or at least simultaneously with that, you've got to make sure you have a product that matters. And I'll give you one more example that still blows my mind. So you had the small energy drinks came out, then the big 16 ounce cans, and then all of a sudden you had five hour energy in the yeah. little shots. Yeah. And that one, not only did they give you like a fifth of the volume, but they charged more for it. Those were selling for like 2.99. Yeah. And those guys, blew it up and still like and it's because it was different right so Why? like where it came in with the same thing these other guys came in with something that was different enough that they could attract attention we it's almost like an espresso as compared to say a cappuccino or a latte yeah the the five hour energy but why did five five hour energy you know make the impact it has because i, I from the last time i heard it it's a billion dollar you know, um, you know, company drinks company. Why? What? What's the? What's what? What? What's the reason? I don't know. I mean, for me, from a a, a consumer who places, places value on what they're spending their money on, to spend more money for less product makes no sense, no sense. at all. Yeah. But I think people just like that quick shot, right? Yeah. Like they can yeah. Some espresso. Just take it. In, yeah. And what's crazy is this is kind of a side note is that they did somehow such a good job with like the worst ads ever possible. <laughs> And to this day, the last time I checked was a few years ago, they still owned 85 or more percent of that market share, despite Red Bull and Monster and all these other big companies trying to get into that energy shot space. Mm -hmm. They absolutely own that. The other thing they did, which was brilliant, was they put the little display uh, stacks up right by the register, too. So and mm -hmm. they did Yes, yes, that, that was, uh, yeah, I picked up on that. That's a massive, massive strategy. And those colors just stand out, really, when you think about it. Um, just tracking back to what you said about Monster and, and Red Bull, to be honest, right, um, just differentiating on size might not be sufficient enough to to prove that your your brand is better than another brand. So case in mind, the 16 ounce of Monster and Red Bull. Do you, do you think Monster did any other thing to sort of prove, to, to prove to the market that, you know, we're, 
we're, we taste better or we're we're better we're a better brand and we also have double the volume you get you, you, you get double the value you, you know from from a red bull from a kind of yeah. red bull I think they, they probably didn't have to do a ton to market the value proposition because it was obvious you can get two dollars for this or two dollars for this right, right. Um, but they did they dumped a ton of money into X games type stuff mm. and athlete sponsorship you know top level athlete sponsorships which again costs a lot of money so to they, do. they might they might have gone 100 million in from an investment we obviously don't know the the, the numbers but they would have gone tens of millions in initially but they'd have had a very very elaborate and detailed um, marketing plan marketing and branding plan I suppose yeah and they yeah. had the resource to do it and the other yeah. the, honestly the other key thing they had was they had distribution right like they already had Hanson's already had distribution for their products so that gave them a huge leg up on all these other hundreds of uh, energy drink startups that had no distribution. Right. Uh, and so uh, one more example for people who are thinking about like products, you know, so the value proposition is one thing, but it was the same price. And so people would still buy, there's, there's customers out there that were drinking two and three of these things a day, right? So one of the startups that came into the market late was Buku. And what their unique thing was, I think they may have started in 16 ounce, but eventually they went to 24 ounce cans and they were 99 cents, which, you know, so you've got kids that would drink that stuff. And a lot of like, I don't know how to classify this, but it's like some of the construction worker guys or the truck drivers, right? Like they'd stop in, normally they'd buy a few. So what happened was the volume would be huge on these initially because mm-hmm. 99 cents, right? For yeah. a huge 24 ounce energy drink. But what the retailers figured out pretty quick was that they were losing money because people went from buying two or three $2 energy drinks to one 99 cents energy drink. Right. So you can't make that up in volume. You know, the retailers were losing money selling that. So that one, it had a, it went like this and then it went like that. Flat and out. about the only place you'll find that if it's even still around is in the dollar stores. Right. So it's kind of like a, it's just something to think about when you're pricing your product is, you might the consumers might love it but if the retailers are going to lose on the way you price your product then you're going to have a hard time it seems it seems like monster have executed it the best because they retained the price they didn't crash the the market basically the the price they didn't crash the price but they just doubled the volume so that value is still there people will be encouraged to buy two cans or a six pack of monster versus you know a six pack or a you know or or a can of red bull so you know they they retained what about relentless is relentless in the in the us or um because like relentless uh, is similar to to monster here in the uk i haven't seen it okay um very very similar similar value proposition it's perhaps european um okay right um yeah this this sounds really really interesting okay shall i should we sort of summarize you did mention in your notes that you spent money foolishly. We, we've talked about that. You assumed the consumers and buyers cared about the wrong things. So what, let's talk about distribution before we wrap things up. You know, distribution. Um, what, how can listeners or entrepreneurs in, in the drink space um, take you know, the right distribution, the right moves into distribution. What, what should, should they think local or should they think national? And what's your take and what's your philosophy on, on distribution at the moment? 
I'll tell you, when my dad listens to this, he's going to tell you that he told me this all along, was start local, start small, right? Because especially if you have limited resources. Um, I think before you even look at that, and this is maybe one of the most important lessons I would have learned, wish I would have learned, or things I would have known before I started was, like, understand the landscape, understand the distribution and sales landscape. We had no idea, right? Like, we were used to bike shops where we could call up the owner of the bike shop and get them to say yes. So this is going to be a long way to answer this question, but if you don't understand what you're getting yourself into, then you don't even know how to act. And so we went into this thinking, oh, we'll just go around to some convenience stores. We'll get them to carry it. You know, the distributors will say, oh, yeah, well, this is a no brainer. I've already got these guys already got 50 accounts open for me or whatever it is. Um, And, you know, that worked to some extent. But then what happens is um, you start to realize how retail distribution works and retail placement. And so there's, I mean, I can literally go on for this for so many different lessons. So I'll try and make it super quick. So we got, when we got into the stores, the store guys, the store owners would say, okay, well, I don't really have any space for you. I was like, well, what, right there, you know, like I'm looking, there's an empty slot right there. Can we just take that? Oh no, uh, that's monster slot. I was like, oh, okay, well, what about over there or, or something? They're like, basically, no, look, see those doors over there? Coca-Cola pays for those doors. Pepsi pays for those doors. Everybody else pays, you know, Monster, whatever. They pay for these shelves on these doors and stuff. So essentially, you go into a store and they wouldn't carry you because you weren't paying them. And it's mm-hmm. slotting fees are, you know, unfortunately, just a cost of doing business and when you get up into the chains like 7-eleven or the grocery stores and stuff like that like the um, dollar amounts that they want to be in their stores are you know you can get into the tens of thousands of dollars yeah just buy a slot to place your product will, will that will that slot be per month with the tens of thousands of dollars help you per month or per year do you do you buy, uh, buy that slot over a period of time yeah it's negotiated by the retailer okay Probably, you know it depends um like the big guys and so the other side of that too is that uh they might say, oh, well, we don't need any more energy drinks or we don't need any more of whatever category you're selling. And I was like, okay, well, but like I know, like let's say, so Coca-Cola, and I'm, I hate to trash Coca-Cola because I own stock in them. But yeah, so Coca-Cola had one called Full Throttle and it was, it's horrible. It's terrible branding, ugly packaging, tastes god awful. And it doesn't sell. Like you could tell the store owners would tell you, yeah, this doesn't sell, doesn't move. I was like, well, why can we just replace that? No. Well, why not? Oh, well, because Coca-Cola, you know, if we want to carry Coke, you know, basically you read between the lines and they say, if we want to carry Coke, we have to carry Dasani and Minute Maid and Full Throttle and everything else that they sell. And it was just, that was part of the contract. And so these brands would go in and say, oh, you don't want to carry energy drink? Okay, well, I'll just uh, give me that check back and I'm going to pull all my products out. And the store owners will be, oh, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, I need to sell Coke. Fine, give me the rest of the stuff. Yeah, you know? and it was just this terrible game, and it's to me it's anti-competitive, but it's right. just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And so that was that was some of, one of the biggest lessons we learned on the retail side. On the distributor side, you, you've got for us anyway. We had two two different levels of distributor. We had these mom and pop people, who you know some of them were great people, whatever, but they would bust their butt two or three people trying to go around and sell into all these stores and they just couldn't keep up. They were late paying us if they could pay us at all. Some of them, they just ended up shutting their doors down and 
Sorry. You know, we owe, we owe you more than 10 grand, but sorry, we're out of here. Um, and we had a few of that, a few of those happen. And so you, that's, that's the one side where they really don't have the strength to get into the big chains either. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not in, you could be in all of the little tiny C stores all around, but if you're not in like the seven 11s and the quick trips and you know, whatever you Wawa's, whatever you have in your particular area, um, you're just not going to do all that well. How do you get the footfall? How do you get the eyeballs? Most especially, you know, the awareness, you know, distribution yeah. awareness is key. And yeah. And then the sales, obviously. Yeah. And so yeah. you have, and so the other, the flip side of the distribution is the big guys. And for the big guys for us, we're the beer distributors because obviously Coke and Pepsi weren't going to touch us because they had their own products. So, the beer distributors were kind of like the only big distributors we could go and get. And so we, you know, like, and I'm eternally grateful to our local Miller distributor because they took a chance on us after we had enough stores to give, make it worth their while. And so they brought us in and it's just like sales, just, they never grew. We never opened new accounts unless we personally went out and opened the accounts for them. And then the product would stay in there for the most part. So finally, one day I took their sales manager to lunch. I'm like, all right, what's going on? Like, we're not growing at all. What can I do to incentivize your team? And he looked me straight in the eye. He's like, nothing. I was like, well, why, why aren't you guys selling? He's like, look, our guys go into the store every week. They walk directly into the back of the cooler. They look to see what's missing. They write it down on their notepad. They take it to the front. The guy signs off. The next day, our driver shows up and fills the slots. I was like, so you don't, you don't even have to sell? He's like, no, we don't have to sell. We go in and we figure out what's empty and we replace it. I was like, well, what can I do to get your guys to like go and sell? He's like, nothing, because my guys aren't going to spend five minutes to go in there and try and push something and promote something that they might sell two cases of when they can walk in the back and write an order for 50 cases of Miller Lite, right? right? Like, it's, there's just, no point. Just the way it is, yeah. So you, you've got to be able to find somehow a distributor that cares or figure out a way to get in the store with people who care. And... In our case, the people who cared didn't have the power to get it into the stores. The people who did didn't care. Right. Um. Interesting. Very, very, very interesting. Okay, just to summarize, um, <clears throat> what I've sort of picked up from this in terms of the pillars, if we were to sort of structure this out on the pillars of, <laughs> you know, creating a, <clears throat> a successful drinks business, you need to think about the product. And on the one hand, you know, your product has to be different and special you know in in one hand without actually undercutting you know the market then your pricing needs to be on point you know um you don't want to undercut the market and you don't want to be too expensive um and then um the other would be the promotion you know um which this is really like the four p's of, of marketing you know where your promotion has to be on point um well a lot of your competitors had, you know, deeper pockets with regards to promotion. And then the distribution is really key. Um, you had issues with your distribution. Are there any other sort of pillars? you agree with with those pillars or? Yeah, the thing I'd add about the product is, yeah. you know, you could do it two ways. Like for us, um, you could do it different. Like I mentioned the examples of Monster and Five Hour coming into the category differently. Mm-hmm. Or the other one is just make your product matter, right? Like for us, if you look at who our customer base was, our product didn't matter at all. And what one of the ones that I look at that was really successful that I was impressed with at the time 
was Honest Tea, right? So Honest Tea, they, you know, you come in and that's a crowded market too, right? You've got Lipton and Snapple and Arizona Tea and all these other ones that you're competing against. And so they did it differently, but they also did it in a way that mattered, right? Like, so if people wanted something that was less sweet, that was the only option. So it was different, but it was also that message of like, not so much sugar, just a little bit sweet for refreshing, you know, that to some, there was a customer base that that mattered to. Mm-hmm. Um, with the energy drink, nobody cared that we were healthier or better tasting. Just, okay, okay, we, that makes we sense. Cared. We cared okay. about the wrong Yeah, right. and I suppose in your promotion, you, you need to sort of emphasize, you know, why why your product actually matters. Okay, okay, well, so this is... Make sure that it matters, that's the key. Okay, it's make like, sure. You make sure it matters to the people who are gonna spend their money on it. Okay, all right. So yeah, it's it's been a very 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 interesting you know conversation, Tyler. Um, we're going to wrap up now with um, our lightning round. I ask my guests these questions, five questions in every single episode. They just require a single answer. Um, cool. Ready when you are. Go for it. What are your future plans? Uh, so bike rumor, still doing that and loving it. Trying to figure out how to grow the audience on that one. Uh, and then I also just launched the build cycle, which is my way of almost doing what you're doing is interviewing founders to hear their startup stories mm-hmm. and kind of provide those in a way that are inspiring to future entrepreneurs. Okay. How do I get to build cycle? What's, what's the website's address? Uh, you can type in thebuildcycle.com. Thebuildcycle.com. Okay. All right. I'll link to it in the show notes, thebuildcycle.com. Okay. Um, how do you hire people? So for Bike Rumor, what we do really is they end up coming to us. So the two guys that I have full time and some of my best contributors are people who just emailed out of the blue and said, hey, you know, I like what you're doing. We'd love to write for you. Um, We've put out a few calls, say, hey, we need writers. And we end up getting some people that are like super excited at first. We get them all set up. We say, here's what you got to do. And then they just disappear. So for us, really, it's the best ones that we have. Mm-hmm. are ones that contacted us because they were genuinely interested in contributing. Mm-hmm. What's been your best mistake to date? <laughs> By this I mean a setback. <laughs> the entire show. We should listen to the entire show. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, All right. Um, God, I don't know. I think the, the overall best lesson I've learned is to spend money more intelligently because, man, with, this, with both the sports drink and the energy drink, dude, I blew so much money in so many stupid ways, mm. and I'm still paying for that. Like, the the dumbest thing was, run, like, when times were really tight with the energy drink, we, you know, we saved the money for production and what marketing we could do. So my wife and I started living paying my paying our salary off of our home equity line right and not putting that logging that correctly into quickbooks and so we're still paying that off because when yeah. it came time to close up the investors were like you know we feel for you but that's not in quickbooks that's not legit expense. it didn't come out from the business so yeah Ouch. yeah so like it's been eight years now and i'm still paying off a home equity line that we Ouch. used to live off of oh <laughs> yeah Okay, right. Um, what one piece of advice would you give to people keen on building their drink, a food and drink, you know, business? Oh man, um, it's a pretty broad category. So there's so mm-hmm. many different things. So like a, the general piece of advice would be to go back to just like 
make it different or make it matter. It's make it some, different, make it matter. If it yeah. doesn't, it's just a Me Too product and it's it's a commodity. Which is a recurring theme on um, with all of the food brands that I've, I've interviewed so far, all of the food food brands, yeah, I've, I've talked about, they're, they're all kind of different. They have their unique t- taste, which earns them the spots on the shelves of um, stores. Okay, um, one last question is, if you could choose a single book or resource that's made the highest impact on how you do building, how you view building a business and growing a business, which would it be? Uh, it's probably going to sound cliche at this point, but four hour work four week. Hour work week. And the reason why is it's like, for me, the most important reason why I, I do my own thing is because I value my freedom too much Absolutely. to sit in, sit in somebody else's office working for somebody else. Mm. And th- that book, it's, it's, even though I was kind of already doing my own thing when I found it, like it just sort of reinforces the idea that you can, mm. and it spurs so many different Oh, and I could do this. Oh, and what if I try this? Like, there's so many ideas in there that, man, if you're thinking at all about doing your own thing, that book should like light a fire under your butt. I absolutely agree. Do you, do you travel? Oh, all the time. Oh, yeah, nice. we bought an RV last year, and you know, on the road almost every summer with the family for like five, six weeks. That's at a fantastic. Time. Great lifestyle, great lifestyle. Okay, Tyler, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. You've been brave, super, super brave coming in to share your failures. Seriously, you know, um, I've got failures and, you know, you would need to put a gun in my head for me to, to tell them to you in public. But, you know, most especially, a lot of people listening to this will not make those mistakes you made so the impact is actually greater rather than you bit in your chest you know talking about your successes so i really really appreciate your time and um your knowledge you you shared with your experience um and i hope to get in touch with you soon yeah definitely well, i hope it was helpful I'm, I'm not sure i should be honored to be your first guest that talks about how i failed but <laughs> I appreciate the opportunity, man. You'll be the first of many. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Everybody, um, thanks for listening. Um, uh, There would be show notes to this on 2X e-commerce. Drop me a line as to who you want me to talk to. What you learned from this episode, I would ping it on to Tyler. Tyler, by the way, what's the best way for the guests to get in touch with you if they, you know, had any, have any questions or want to learn more about the build cycle? So it's, uh, they can hit me up. I'm at Tyler Benedict on all social media and everything. I'm okay. at the Build Cycle. Tyler Benedict, okay, okay, okay. All right, cool. Fantastic. Do have a good one. Thank you so much. Cheers. Yeah, thanks. Bye. See ya.